Good afternoon, and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Tim Lynch, and I'm the director of Cato's Project on Criminal Justice. Today we want to examine a very aggressive law enforcement tactic that is known as the no-knock raid or the no-knock search. Uh, the question is, is what are the circumstances in which the police should be able to use battering rams to come crashing into somebody's home in order to conduct an investigation? Um, we can all, I think, imagine some situations in which we would want the, the police to come crashing in in a very aggressive fashion without any warning. But the situations of like a heavily armed fugitive or a barricaded suspect, these are extraordinary type cases. Um, but the question that's in the news lately is whether or not this trend of no-knock raids is whether or not these tactics are being uh, used on a standard or almost routine basis. And that seems to be the case, especially within uh, the drug units in many of our police departments. So that's what we want to uh, address this afternoon. Before we get started, I should note that the Cato Institute has published dozens of studies and articles about the drug war in general, how the war has distorted our foreign policy, how it distracts the police from the fight against violent crime, and how it undermines our civil liberties, such as by using the civil forfeiture laws and by other means. But what we want to do today is focus on these no-knock uh, searches. It seems to me that there's both legal and policy problems surrounding these no-knock raids. Uh, everyone here has heard of the legal maxim that uh, a man's house is his castle. The idea there was that the home is supposed to be a place of shelter, protection, and privacy. It's not supposed to be a place where government agents can arbitrarily uh, invade uh, on a whim. The American Constitution requires that the police obtain warrants before they can demand entrance into a home. And then we have a knock-and-announce principle in our law, which limits the ways in which the, the police can then execute these warrants. They're supposed to, when they find it necessary that a home has to be searched, they're supposed to go up to the front door, knock, announce that they're the police, that they're there on official business. And the idea behind that principle is to give the occupants of the home a fair opportunity to come to the door and open it up peacefully, avoiding a violent confrontation. The knock-and-announce doctrine is rooted in the idea of respect for private property and respect for the liberty and dignity of homeowners. But unfortunately, the knock-and-announce rule seems to be falling by the wayside. Instead of being celebrated as an important principle for a free society, it is too often seen as an obstacle in the way of the police who are trying to make drug busts. Now, our panel is going to delve into this subject more deeply, both into the legal aspects of it and also into the policy aspects of it. Before I introduce our first speaker, um, I would ask uh, those of you who came with cell phones, if you would please double-check and make sure that they are turned off uh, as a courtesy to our speakers. I'd include the panelists in that. That happened one time where <laughs> panelists' phones started ringing. Thank you. Our first speaker, uh, Shai Calvo, was a victim of one of these no-knock raids a few weeks ago. I'm going to let him tell the story, but I know you already know the gist of it from the uh, newspapers and the local TV stations. Uh, the police were tracking a Federal Express package uh, that contained marijuana. The package was addressed to his house, but he had nothing at all to do with the package. This is a package that could have been addressed to anybody here. 
once the package uh, well, it was initially left on the front porch, once it was moved into the house, uh, the police rushed onto the property, kicked in the front door, and then started shooting uh, his two pet uh, uh, Labrador retrievers. Had the police bothered to check who lived at the address before their violent entry, they would have discovered that they were at the house of the mayor of the town and that he had a squeaky clean record. <clears throat> But it was only after the violence that the police discovered what they had done. Uh, they later cleared the mayor of any wrongdoing, but they continued to defend the no-knock raid and the shooting of the dogs. The FBI has now been brought in to investigate this incident. Now, before we came on, Shai Calvo gave me uh, more of his background information because he's worried that, that the only thing people seem to know about him is that the police kicked in and raided his door. And they're forgetting about all the good things that he has done as the as uh, mayor. He is now in his third term as the mayor of the town of Berwyn Heights, Maryland. And as mayor, he has put the town's uh, fiscal house in order. Uh, he's reduced the town's debt, and he's kept the taxes the lowest in the county. He's led efforts to put additional officers on the street, and he has also moved to enhance community policing. During the last two years, the town has had record low crime rates. Uh, his, this is something new to me. I didn't learn this until we were putting this forum together, but uh, his, his responsibility as the mayor is only a part-time job for him. He actually has a full-time job, and he just works a few blocks away here from the Cato Institute. Uh, in his day job, as he puts it, Mr. Calvo serves as the Director of Expansion with the Seed Foundation, an innovative education nonprofit that runs the nation's only public college prep boarding schools for at-risk students. He's also the author of many articles and publications on a range of policy issues, and he's testified before Congress and many state legislatures over the years on public policy issues. Now, I should also credit Mayor Calvo's father for his help in putting this event together. Um, although I was following the case in the newspapers, um, his father went on the Internet uh, because he was totally outraged when he had learned what happened to his son, and he went on the Internet to learn more about these types of incidents. And that led him to the Cato Institute website where we maintain a raid map of these types of incidents going on all around the country. Um, so he contacted us, and he asked that his son uh, incident be added to our raid map. Now, we, we not only did that, and we're happy to do it, but we also ask that Mayor Calvo come here to tell us his story and to help us spread the word about these no-knock raids. And we're obviously pleased that he agreed to do so. So would you please welcome our first speaker, Mr. Mayor uh, Shai Calvo. Good afternoon. Thank you, Tim. Um, and I want to thank the Cato Institute for uh, hosting this forum and, and, and raising questions that need to be raised. I especially appreciate the, the plug from my father, who uh, uh, is a longtime follower of the Cato's work. So he, he will be thrilled when he watches this at his home in Florida. Um, it's an interesting point. You know, it's hard to describe what it's like to go through something like this. The event itself, much less a following media circus, where you're just regular people, and I get on the metro every day, go to work downtown like other people. It just happens to be that my side life, I'm the mayor of my town. And, if, and as is my wife, she runs the town's recreation council, which puts on events for children. Uh, we don't have kids of our own. We're still in our 30s. Uh, but we do have, we did have uh, two black labs. Um, so we're just regular people to some degree. But... Uh, an experience like this uh, does put you through a personal journey. So I, I look forward to listening to what uh, the later speakers have to say in many ways because uh, in the last 45 days or a month and a half, I for myself have, have 
given some new thoughts of things I haven't thought of. And I'll be honest with you. I think like a lot of Americans who've become familiar with my case and, and other cases like it, you go through your own sort of process of thinking about things differently. So I appreciate forums like this and, and to raise new questions, even if I may disagree with some outcomes, I, I, I admire the fact that these conversations take place. What I was thinking to do today in the time we have, and I look forward to questions later, is telling a little bit about the story, sharing the narrative with you, as well as sharing some thoughts and observations that I have regarding my specific case, as well as some broader issues that have occurred to me over the last month and a half. The story begins on July 29th. Um, it was a regular summer day. I was coming home from work. I had a community meeting. We have a My neighbor municipalities in, in, in the town of Berwyn Heights have a quarterly meeting uh, that I was hosting that night. And so I was, but like all nights, regardless of whether I have a meeting, I had to get home and walk my dogs because that's the deal. And so I, you know, hurried home from work. I arrived about 6.30, ran upstairs, got off my business clothes and put on shorts and grabbed my dogs and leashes. Um, my mother-in-law who was home mentioned that uh, while I was upstairs, a package had been delivered to her house. She just, you know, didn't have time to deal with it, but she had them leave the package on the front steps. Didn't think much of it. Grab my two dogs. They walked beautifully on my left, and we walked through the neighborhood. I saw some black SUVs parked. Uh, thought it was odd, but I was focused on this letter about some stormwater or some development problems that were happening up the, up the river, and we were sending this letter that evening to uh, Maryland Department of Environment. So I, I waved to the, to the gentleman in the SUV and just got on my way. When I got home, um, you know, probably a 20, 25-minute walk maybe, I uh, came through the gate uh, saw, picked up the box that was on my steps. It was addressed to my wife, uh, valid address, valid name. Uh, walked around to the side door, uh, brought it inside, hung Alicia's up, put the box unopened on a living room table in front of the window, and went upstairs to get back in business attire to make my meeting. Um, I walked in the door uh, from the walk about 7.05. About 7.15, I was upstairs. Uh, I'd gotten as far as getting down to my boxer shorts. Uh, when my mother-in-law screamed. She said something along that made no sense. It was something along like, shy, I think it's SWAT. But it was a yell, loud, fearful scream. I ran to the window where I saw three or four men in black and masks holding high-caliber rifles walking across my yard. I didn't have time to process that before I heard an explosion. Uh, Explosion of my door being blown open, followed by immediate gunfire. Uh, There were loud noises, screams. Uh, I heard words like downstairs, upstairs, more gunfire. I hit the ground, uh, hit the ground, and could hear boots running through my house. Um, Don't know how many. Uh, But I started screaming, I'm up here, I'm up here, please don't shoot. Uh, And it was a short time after that that the doors opened, and I began screaming, I'm up here, I'm up here. Uh, And they said, come to the top of the stairs, hands in the air, uh, which I did. When I got there, I could see... I could see two high-caliber rifles pointed at me. That image is, is, is pretty strong in my mind. I, they had me walk down the stairs backwards in my boxer shorts, hands in the air. When I reached the bottom, they bound my hands. They pulled me across the living room, had me kneel on the floor in front of my front door, which had been blown open. Uh, I thought it was a home invasion. I was fearful that I was about to be executed as I kneeled there on my floor. Uh, I saw my mother-in-law bound, lying face down in the kitchen. Uh, in front of the dinner that she was preparing, uh, artichoke and tomato pasta dish. The startling sight was Peyton, my older dog, named after Walter Peyton, uh, my childhood hero, laying dead in the far corner of the living room in a pool of his own blood. 
I won't go through the details of the story, but uh, the you know nine a dozen men in black standing around my living room, uh, just standing around. I asked them, "Do you have a warrant?" They said one was in route. I was relieved when I actually confirmed that it was in fact law enforcement. I wasn't about to be executed, um, and I just told them there was a horrible mistake. Uh, one of them mentioned to me the box, and it hadn't occurred to me till then that it was the box. And that began, all said, it was about a three-and-a-half, four-hour ordeal. Um, surreal. Eventually, someone got me a pair of slacks. Um, you know, before the end, I think I was eventually gotten a shirt. But for the most part, it was me, um, you know, half-dressed uh, in my living room and then in my kitchen being interrogated, unsure of what was happening. My wife came home in the middle. Uh, you know, she just came home, maybe, you know, certainly after to have a SWAT team on her lawn, which she approached. Uh, and, and she thought that someone had broken into our house. Uh, and she asked about me, asked about her mother, and then realized the dogs had been killed and just broke out sobbing. Um, the details have been replayed on a number of occasions, so I won't get into many of them, but it was about three thirty, four o'clock, four, three and a half, four hours later when they told us that, uh, they had found nothing to connect us to the box, which wasn't a surprise to us. Um, and we had offered by that point to give them bank records, anything they wanted, we were going to give them. Um, but it was it, it, probably two and a half hours they took the dogs' bodies away. Uh, maybe two, you know, 90 minutes to uh, two hours they took the bodies away. Um, and so we sat through this, questioning, confusion. Um, and when they left a little after 11 o'clock, uh, uh, they had told us that we were still parties of interest, that we were suspicious. I particularly was suspicious because I did not act in a way um, that was typical on these occasions. I mean, I was angry. I, 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 gave, uh, I gave as good as I got, at least in the conversation. Um, but I acted suspiciously. And, but in the end, they didn't, want, they didn't take us in. Uh, they could. They could arrest us all. That was enough to put us in jail. But... Um, they were going to do us the favor of not taking us in that night. So we were left with an unsecured door, uh, our belongings thrown upside down inside the house, and uh, two enormous pools of blood, one in the living room, one in the dining room. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, you know I, the, the story developed from there. The next day, the media circus began. I mean, I don't know what it's like, to, you know, to explain what it's like to go, you know, to pick up your Washington Post in the morning. Uh, to have live camera feeds, but uh, you know, at 6 a.m. or you know, to take the you know to to go out you know at 11 o'clock at night and have more live camera feeds. But um, it was rough on my family, my mother-in-law who got the worst of it. Uh, you know, my 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 wife who has to deal with the fact that uh, you know our lives are changed forever. It's it's a very personal thing. But I'm also the mayor of my town, and it didn't just affect me; it affected my community. My community rallied. No one in my town ever asked me if we were drug traffickers. I never had to answer that question to them. Um, unfortunately, I did have to answer that to the media and a lot of speculation and question. But we also recognize that we are incredibly blessed because 10 days later, we were exonerated. Um, how rare it is to have the exoneration louder than the initial raid. Uh, and now the county law enforcement agencies are under an FBI probe uh, for their actions. Um, and and, and uh it's a wonderful turn of events. And we also, you know, well, I'll come back to this. But it took 10 days and we were cleared. Um, now where are we? Uh, those are questions. And I want to share some thoughts with you about this whole event and what I keep coming back to in my mind as I think about it. Uh, the, 
and I have some specific thoughts uh, about my specific case, and like I said, I have some observations about uh, the broader implications of what, what happened to us and I think what happens to um, other people in this country and specifically in Prince George's County. First of all, the investigation itself was so non-existent. I mean, they, they really didn't know basic things. For instance, my name. Um, I own my house. Um, I'm the mayor of the town. They never thought to look up my property records, which any of us can do on our cell phones in about a minute right now. Uh, it's online in Maryland. It's public information. They didn't do that. That would have told them that it was a principal residence. They would have been able to Google me. Before this, I had about good – I mean, I was a pretty good Google before this. I had done a lot of policy work, and um, <laughs> they would have learned some things about me. Uh, they could have Googled my wife. They lear- would have learned that she's a Medicaid finance expert. Um, uh, they could have simply noticed the organic garden in our front yard and or the compost bin out by the shed and realized that this wasn't – there should have been some red flags going off. But say they didn't want to do that. They could have surveilled the house. They could have done a trash search, which is what you do when you think people have drugs. You go through their trash. That's perfectly legal, and anyone can do it, including the police. They could have and should have and were actually legally obligated to contact the local police under a, of a memorandum of understanding, the municipal police, under a memorandum of understanding we have with the county police. Um, they chose not to do that. They couldn't say they didn't do it because I was mayor uh, and the police chief worked for me, which is true. They just didn't know that, so it doesn't work as an excuse. They didn't do other basic things like surveillance. We did this in Berwyn Heights uh, about a year and a half ago where we had a boot full of cocaine that we worked with federal officials, uh, took ver- all the measured steps, shared the local intelligence, um, and uh, ultimately actually led to arrests and deportations. But uh, it was done where we wired the box so when it was open, we could give 30 minutes for the people to call the police and react. They did none of that. They basically got a box. They matched it, the, the name on the box to the tags in the, in the driveway of one of our vehicles, and they started calling around for SWAT teams. Um, they actually got one. To stay. Theirs was busy. Another municipal department said no. They wouldn't let them use it. And finally, the sheriff department said yes. And that's lack of basic investigation before going after a SWAT team um, really led to a lot of the problems that could have been avoided at a very basic level. Secondly, though, it's important to talk about the entry because we all know we have a Fourth Amendment right um, against unlawful search and seizures. Uh, uh, The problem is I'm concerned that Prince George's County law enforcement doesn't understand that basic right. Uh, There was a warrant that was signed um, after – I brought the box inside the house. But there are a couple of important things to think about this entry. It was not a no-knock warrant. Uh, they, they originally had told, the police originally told the media and others that it was a no-knock warrant. That turned out to be false. And in fact, not only did they acknowledge that they didn't have a no-knock warrant, the current position of the Prince George's County Police Department to this moment is that there is no such thing as a no-knock search warrant in the state of Maryland, which is fascinating because at my press conference we handed out House Bill Five seven seven two thousand and five, which established such a procedure for a no-knock search warrant. Um, and as you talk about systemic problems, if the anti-narcotics division of the Prince George's County Police fails to recognize a basic provision of Maryland law, it sort of puts you in a position of wondering what other statutory protections and civil liberties are believed not to exist in Prince George's County. Um, but the reality is they didn't have the authorization to come through our door. And in fact, when confronted with facts over time, the sheriff, the day of the exoneration, actually said that the reason they came through the door the way they did was because my mother-in-law, upon seeing men with guns on our yard as she was cooking dinner, 
one of which was raised to the window directed at her, she screamed. And that scream compromised their execution of a standard knock and announce search and therefore forced them to knock down the door and begin shooting. Um, What's interesting about the idea that they were coming up to the door to serve a warrant, the warrant was signed moments after I brought the box into my house uh, in Bowie, Maryland, which is a good 40 minutes away. It is uncontested that the sheriff did not have the warrant in his physical possession when they came through the door. So it begs the question, what were they going up to the door to serve if they had planned to enter lawfully? The reality is they're making this up after the fact. They were coming in in a no-knock capacity. Um, I think that's fairly clear. Uh, The third point I want to talk about is the dogs because that's the part near and dearest to my heart. I mentioned Peyton. The other dog is... uh, Chase, Samuel Chase, uh, was, he was named after, who was a Maryland Declaration of Independence signer. I'm a history buff. Um, these two dogs were our children. Um, and what infuriates me is the lies that have been said about them. First of all, um, they took pictures of them where they lay. But the sheriff has said publicly that the dogs engaged the officers um, and actually specifically said Peyton met them at the door. Um, the problem with that story is Peyton's body was found 13 feet away from the front door. And we're pretty sure the officer, based on four bullets placed into his body, uh, the officer engaged the dog. Uh, and pretty much Peyton was executed where he was. He probably stood up, didn't have time to turn around before the gun started going off. Um, and the sheriff's statement directly conflicts with physical evidence. The other one's even more disturbing, Chase, my younger dog, who's not the bravest of dogs, but he was, he was wonderful in his own ways. Uh, he was the, the, the talented one, uh, the, the scared, talented one. Uh, he ran away, uh, and he was shot from behind twice, uh, once in the hind leg, uh, the second one in the side after the first bullet turned his body around. Uh, what's upsetting about that is the explanation that he was charging another officer. Uh, physically, I'm not going to get into it, but physically the explanation uh, doesn't make sense because of where the logistics were. It is a physical impossibility that the story they have told could be true. Um, but... The dogs are executed. Um, the details of that we'll, we'll find out eventually. But um, to blame my dogs for their own death troubles me at a very core level, which brings me to my fourth sort of key thought, which is that when I kneeled on the ground as this swirled around me in the opening minutes of this instance, I really thought there was a terrible, terrible, terrible mistake. But as I was forced to listen to the, the stories that they told – including many that turned out to be untrue, some that were outright lies, um, but never ceasing to defend those actions, you begin to realize that there is a deeper fundamental problem uh, that they said, and the sheriff has now concluded, that his men did nothing wrong. Uh, The police chief said they did, you know, basically they did nothing wrong. They made public conclusions right after, before even speaking to me or my family, that they did what they had to do. And what it leads to is a broader systemic problem in Prince George's County that it's come clear to us that there are challenges that we face because it's one thing to make a mistake. We all make mistakes. I'm an imperfect person. I imagine each of you are too. Um, but the ideal is you learn from those mistakes and you move on. But when you don't correct mistakes, they fester, they grow, and you develop a culture of cover-up and lies that ultimately lead to major mistakes that cause real and lasting suffering to people. Which brings me to my observations. Um, I mentioned earlier that, that my family and me are blessed in so many ways, and I, I don't think I realized it until after this incident. I mean, 
out of pocket, I don't, I haven't counted the dollars, but you know, five thousand, ten thousand dollars, and we're we have the money to handle that. That economic hardship could break other families. Uh, but beyond that, we have a community that embraced us, and that outpouring of support from our neighbors, our, our, our family, our friends, so many complete strangers sustained us through the worst of this. But typically when this happens, it happens to people who um, don't have that support, who don't have that presumption of innocence. Actually, they often, you know, uh, they're often you know, dealing with the perception that may deal with uh, them being people of color or may deal with them, the neighborhoods in which they live or simply the fact that they're poor or possibly they've made prior mistakes in their lives and therefore are always presumed guilty. But the reality is most people who suffer this situation are in a very different position. And, and to some degree, I'll admit, I feel the weight of those people who have a very – when this happens to them, it, it has the potential to ruin their lives. Because ultimately in this, my family and I will be okay. Um, but uh, I'm touched by the many people who may have a very different experience after the event itself. So a couple of things to point out. Um, I learned from talking to members of my community – about this, how deeply they were affected by it. I had people, this doesn't happen in Berwyn Heights. We were a very safe, middle-class, working-class neighborhood. You can still afford a house there, but it's, it's a wonderful community. Uh, but we're, you know, we're, we're a strong, low-crime area. Uh, and you start to realize how other people are affected by this instance in their neighborhood. People who didn't have the physical interaction. People who told me they didn't come out of their house for a week. And you start thinking about what about those communities where this is a common occurrence. I heard one estimate that the Prince George's County um, police deployed their SWAT team 700 times in 2007. I haven't confirmed that number, but certainly hundreds of times. And think about those communities where this is a common occurrence. Think about those communities that suffer this over and over again. And those are the communities that are suffering probably the highest crime rate. But most of the people who live in high crime areas are not criminals. Yet if you develop a system of, govern- or a system of policing that treats everyone in high-crime areas like criminals, you're basically perpetuating a problem that, that, that is, is hurting the very people that the police, I think, should be designed to serve. Um, secondly, from my observations, is I'm very concerned about a concept. And I don't know how common this is. I have a lot more information that I want to get. But it seems to me that in this instance, and I worry many others, the SWAT team is the first resort, not the last resort. And so you have these paramilitary responses that are immediate, swift, and painful when the police are supposed to be operating at a more measured pace that follows due process. And I'm very concerned about a a, a system of policing that is focused on excessive force, overwhelming force out of the gate, Uh, search and destroy, not serve and protect. Also... But I'm also led to think that, you know, like so many Americans, like most Americans, I think I appreciate how difficult the job of being a police officer is. And I have tremendous respect for law enforcement professionals, the people on the front lines. I think so many of them are heroes. And I honor the service they give. And I really don't want even to cast blame on the people who came into my house and may have even pulled the trigger on my dog. I don't know enough about them. But I think that most of them were probably just doing their job. But I'm led to believe that they operate within a system in which good people can do bad things. And if you have a failure of leadership at the top of a system, whether it be the police chief or the sheriff or the county executive, and they fail to exercise that leadership to make sure that there is proper oversight for the people whom they give a badge and a gun, 
The problem isn't the people on the front line. It's the system. And if you have a system that cover-ups, that lies, that defends the indefensible, there is a powerful message sent to every single officer working today, working tomorrow, that this is okay. And, and it's, there's a culture that can be corrupting. People who go into a system to do good things can be brought around by procedures and practices and common actions that can be quite corrupting. To the end of the day, they're doing things that they're not very proud of. And I'm sure some of the sheriff's deputies who maybe the people who had to pull the gun were sick as they stood in my living room as I sat there. Um, I wasn't, you know, I, I do think about the fact, though, that when you defend the indefensible, when you lie and you cover up, you're sending powerful signals. Um, but ultimately, I'm, I, I'm more worried about seeking accountability from the people who hire the officers, who train the officers, and who fail to lead the officers appropriately. Which brings me to, I think, my final observation, which is that of the issue of proper oversight. Because I, I can certainly see instances where no-knock entries and, and uh, uh, SWAT teams are appropriate. Um, I don't think they're, they're, they should be common. I think they should be extremely rare. But I also think it begins by the civilian authorities, people like myself. As a small-time mayor, I would put myself in that position, although Berwyn Heights does not have and will never have a SWAT team. The, the reality is you have to ask questions. And one thing I have learned as being mayor is that police is a different world. Really, I mean, police officers are, are – have a different world you know, worldview, and what they do every day is a challenging thing. And I don't get involved in operational matters in, in Berwyn Heights, but I do give parameters to my police chief. We talk about things. When mistakes happen, we discuss them. And I can say in Berwyn Heights there have been instances where we've had to take um, action against officers, and some of those people who did things they shouldn't have done are no longer with us. And that's hard. And I don't want to underscore how difficult it is to penalize or take action against a police officer. But it's necessary. But it begins with the basic thing of knowing what's going on. I think the reality is I don't think most civilian authorities, county council members, city council members, county executives, mayors, know that much about these paramilitary operations which they fund, which they either expressly or implicitly sanction. And I think it begins with actions taken at the civilian leadership elected official range to demand accountability. Things like basic stuff, like I get monthly reports on crime. I get monthly reports on lots of things. I'd like to see people with SWAT teams making sure that they get monthly reports on the deployment of those SWAT teams. Why were they deployed? What were the warrants involved? What were the results of these things? Basic transparency and sunshine that's basic to good government. They don't have to compromise an investigation, but start there. And then once you have transparency, once the elected officials know what's going on, they are then finally in a position to exercise responsibility and accountability. Uh, But I think the reality is so many of them don't know what's going on. There's this, you know, veil that they never pull back or never have an option to see behind, and therefore police culture sort of oversees itself. And as you know, you know, power is a corrupting influence. Um, absolute power ap- corrupts absolutely, but power in its own right has a corrosive effect if not given proper oversight. So what I come back to as someone who is really proud of my police department and proud of my police chief and, and really believes in the work that police do is there has to be some leadership exercised at the tops of these systems and I mean local government. I think sometimes we get too caught up in the federal national discussion, which is sexy and interesting, but I think local government is where these things happen. 
um, and people want to blame other administrations. This is Prince George's County, but I think Prince George's County probably has other departments across the country uh, that are very similar. But what I hope that comes out of this is an attention to the event um, and, and hopefully some, some renewed oversight on the people who, like myself, who two months ago had no idea that this happened so regularly. And hopefully we can participate in a broader conversation that will lead to changes that uh, prevent this from happening uh, more than it does uh, and hopefully make some good uh, so that some systems can be reformed and, and innocent families don't have to suffer. So I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Our second speaker this afternoon has established himself as one of the leading experts on no-knock searches in America. We know him well here at Cato because he developed that expertise uh, when he was working here not too long ago. Um, in 2006, we published his groundbreaking study called Overkill, the Rise of Paramilitary Police Raids in America. And this report documents dozens and dozens of cases where people are injured and people are killed during these no-knock raids. And what is so unfortunate is that when people hear about stories like what happened to Mayor Calvo, they react as, as you know, everybody reacts. They think that it's terrible. They think it's horrible. But then the police come out sometimes and say, well, it is a tragic accident. Uh, thank goodness it's an isolated incident. This report demolishes the idea that these things are isolated incidents. They happen much, much more frequently than many people realize. And that's why it's, it's one of the, you know, if there's a silver lining in this incident, and there really isn't, but the, the fact that the more attention is being brought to these no-knock raids is, is one possible uh, good thing to come out of this. Um, his work has been published in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Time Magazine, and other national outlets. Uh, his work on paramilitary raids was cited by Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer in a case two years ago. Uh, he also des deserves credit for bringing national attention to the case of a man named uh, Corey May, a black man who was railroaded onto death row in Mississippi because he retrieved a gun during one of these late-night no-knock raids because he believed that he was in the middle of a home invasion where criminals were breaking in and were going to harm his family. Um, he started shooting after the front door came crashing down. He retreated to his bedroom, and when the, the door to his bedroom came crashing down, he started shooting because he feared for his life. Uh, when the lights came on, unfortunately, the, it became apparent that it was a police officer who he had shot, and the police officer just never announced himself and what he was doing there. Um, this act of self-defense was perverted into a murder charge, and as I said, he was initially prosecuted for murder. He was on death row in Mississippi. Uh, this is a miscarriage of justice that has not yet been corrected, but because of our next speaker's writings, uh, a top uh, Washington, D.C. law firm is now working on his case trying to correct this injustice. Um, he's a senior editor at Reason Magazine, and he has a regular column uh, with foxnews.com. Uh, he also has his own popular blog site, which he calls The Agitator. Would you please welcome Radley Balco? Thanks, uh, Tim. And it's good to be back at Cato. Uh, I'd like to also thank Mayor Calvo. Um, it's it's uh, impressive to see somebody who's able to sort of step back and, and have... Uh, the proper perspective on this issue and, and to be able to sort of see it 
uh, in the broader prism that you that you have, um, particularly so close to the raid. Um, <clears throat> I'm gonna a couple of things I want to clear up before we start. Um, the first thing is uh, the difference between a no knock raid and a knock and announce raid. Uh, I think the issue that 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 we're talking about today is the issue of forced entry uh, and, and police forcing their way into private homes to serve uh, what mostly are nonviolent uh, uh, search warrants or warrants for nonviolent crimes. Um, from my experience, and I, I've been studying this for uh, a few years now, there really is no difference between a no-knock warrant and a knock-and-announce warrant, uh, at least from the perspective of the people inside the home. Uh, most of these raids are served at night. Uh, and the amount of time that passes between the knock and the announcement and the time the battering ram or, or the explosives blow off the door, uh, if you're asleep in a bedroom uh, in the back of the house or upstairs or in the basement, uh, there's really no time for you to come to, come to the door and prevent this sort of violence from, from happening in your home. Uh, so I, th I really think the issue here is forced entry, and I think the, what we need to ask ourselves is in what types of situations is forced entry appropriate? Um, well, what happened to Mayor Calvo was obviously awful. Um, I got a little choked up just hearing him tell the story again. Um, but I would argue that even if Mayor Calvo had been guilty uh, of receiving that package of marijuana, uh, that these tactics are wholly inappropriate. Uh, this is not a, uh, a, a, w a proper way to police nonviolent drug crimes. Uh, the idea that we have police officers armed uh, – in some cases better than our military is armed in Iraq, uh, and they're coming in and breaking down people's doors uh, to serve warrants that are basically designed to prevent people from getting high, I think is absurd. Uh, and I think it, uh, in a lot of ways, really shows just how uh, absurd the drug war has become. Um, as Tim mentioned, I, I uh, did dozens and dozens of case studies, about 300 uh, for the Overkill paper, about 180 are in the paper, and the others are online. Um, but since that paper came out, which was in July of 2006, there have been a couple dozen more cases. Um, and just to sort of give you an idea of how common this is, um, you know, Mayor Calvo talked about how many times the Prince George's County SWAT team uh, serves warrants in the area. Uh, there's a, a, a criminologist in uh, Kentucky who's been surveying SWAT teams for about 30 years now. He estimates that what happened to Mayor Calvo happens somewhere between 40 and 50,000 times a year in this country. And the vast majority of those are to serve drug warrants, and the vast majority of those are to serve warrants on nonviolent offenders. Um, just a couple of cases I want to run through that have happened just since the paper came out. Uh, there's the case of Peyton Strickland, who was a college student uh, at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. Uh, during that raid, the police came to the door, uh, knocked on the door. This was a knock and announce. As Strickland approached the door, uh, again, they didn't give him time to actually open it, uh, one officer put the battering ram into the door. A second officer mistook the sound of the battering ram for gunshots uh, and opened fire through the door, uh, shooting and, and killing uh, Mr. Strickland. It's the case of Gonzalo, Gonzalo Guizan in Connecticut. This was just a few months ago. Uh, the police got a tip that uh, a man was using cocaine in his home, not even selling or distributing, merely using. Uh, they immediately sent out the SWAT team. Uh, by the time the SWAT team got there, uh, there was an, uh, Mr. Guizan was visiting the home. He didn't even live there. Uh, he and the homeowner were discussing, according to Guizan's family, they were discussing a, uh, a business proposition. They were going to set up an employment company. Uh, the SWAT team 
<clears throat> breaks open the door, and, and for some reason, and I, this is pretty rare, uh, there was a dog, apparently, that ran in first, uh, a police dog. Mr. Guizan was uh, afraid of dogs and ran toward the door to get away from the dog, uh, ran toward the, the SWAT team, which they took as an assault, uh, and they opened fire uh, and killed him. He also was unarmed. Uh, there's the case of Tariq Wilson. Uh, this was in Lima, Ohio, earlier this year. This was a SWAT raid on a legitimate drug dealer. Uh, her boyfriend actually was dealing drugs, but I think it points out that these tactics are so aggressive and so prone to violence and have such a low margin of error uh, that oftentimes, even when the police do get the correct house, you have the problem of children in the home. You have the problem of bystanders. Uh, in the case of Tarika Wilson, uh, her boyfriend was a drug dealer. The police came into the home, uh, arrested the, the boyfriend, but as one officer was one walking up the stairs, uh, another officer opened fire on the dogs, which seems to be a, a pretty common practice. That officer mistook his fellow officer's fire for hostile fire. Uh, Wilson was actually uh, in her bedroom on her knees holding her son, uh, complying with police instructions. The officer on the stairs mistook the, the fire at the dogs for hostile fire, uh, opened fire into the bedroom at the shadow that was coming out of the bedroom, uh, killed Wilson, a 26-year-old mother, uh, and uh, shot the, the hand off of her one-year-old son. Um, <clears throat> so in all these cases, after the, after the raid happens, after things go down, there's always a review. And the review always determines that this is a tragic, horrible mistake, but that it was a mistake, uh, that policy was generally followed, and that no one, was to, no one is to blame. <clears throat> um, so how do we get there? And I guess what I want to look at is, is what sort of series of assumptions uh, piled up on top of one another does it take to get from the point where our uh, public officials, police officials, sometimes even elected officials, can look at what happened to Mayor Calvo, can look at what happened to Peyton Strickland and Gonzalo Guzan and Tarika Wilson, uh, and conclude that as bad as this is, no one's to blame, and we're not going to change any policies either. Well, I think the first assumption is we have this idea that has a lot of public support, uh, probably in this room, also that uh, the government has an obligation to protect us from ourselves. Uh, and to that extent, the government has an obligation to protect us from uh, what, the, what some people in the government has determined harmful, and that's taking illicit drugs. Uh, the second assumption, assumption <clears throat> is that and this is sort of a, a cause and effect sort of thing, but that when you make certain drugs illegal, the purity of those drugs increases. Uh, you have uh, higher pro or you get higher profit margins because people are, are smuggling it in. The price goes up. Uh, so you bring in a criminal element. It attracts you, – you create black markets. You create uh, all sorts of, uh, of crime like we saw with alcohol prohibition. Uh, so the second assumption is that you have this high criminal element now dealing with drugs – uh, so now we, we have to be extra, extra tough when we're policing drugs, right, because we're dealing with hard, hardened criminals. Uh, the third assumption then is, well, the criminals are, are outgunning the police, and this is actually a false assumption, which I talk about in the paper. Um, but to that extent, then, we need sort of these very, very aggressive tactics. We need to declare war on drugs. We have to use this war imagery. Drugs are so powerful and, and <clears throat> such a, a detriment to society that uh, only kind of the, the drastic emergency actions we allow government to take in wars are appropriate to this. Um, and I think this has a very, very profound effect on the psychology of the police officers who we ask to go out on the front lines in these cases. 
uh, when, we, when you take a, a police officer and you uh, outfit him in military gear and you give him military weapons and you give him military training and you tell him to use military tactics and then you tell him he's fighting a war, uh, it's not uh, uh, hard, difficult to understand how they may take that to heart and take a very us-versus-them sort of uh, win-at-any-cost mentality when they are out there fighting this war. <clears throat> well, then we get to the fourth assumption, which is that because these drug dealers are so violent and because it's so urgent that we get drugs off the streets, uh, we have to be able to break down doors to get in. Because if we don't break down doors, either the, the drug dealer who's a violent person by nature is going to have time to get a gun and shoot the police officers or he's going to have time to get rid of the evidence. Um, from there, we get well. We also need um, <clears throat> we also need to uh, immediately incapacitate everyone in the house. So we have to use these extra violent, extra aggressive, extra confrontational tactics, right? We have to come in. We have to throw everybody on the floor. We have to handcuff them at gunpoint, uh, and you get to the point where it's necessary to use you know these sort of terror tactics, which is. Uh, I've, I've written a couple articles on this idea that uh, the police always shoot the dog in these raids. Uh, the dog is usually the first, the first casualty. Um, and a lot of times it's, it's just to get it out of the way. A lot of times um, I, I guess the officers may legitimately be in fear for their safety if it's a, a particularly aggressive dog. But uh, it's difficult to see how an officer dressed in, in bulletproof gear could, could actually fear for his life from, from a dog. Um, but we have to kill the dogs because it's sort of – they get in the way of, of securing the house, right? And we have to get in there as quickly as we can. So you sort of pile all these assumptions together, and you get what I think everybody would agree is a very absurd conclusion, which is that uh, it's perfectly appropriate to go in and break somebody's door down and shoot their dogs and handcuff them and throw them on the floor at gunpoint uh, over a box of marijuana. And even if we made a mistake, uh, we should be forgiven, and there shouldn't be any accountability because – we followed all the proper procedures, which, of course, are all drawn from this, this list of assumptions. <clears throat> uh, the other unfortunate uh, aspect of this case is be these drug because these, these raids are so confrontational, because there is such a low margin for error and there's such a high possibility for violence, um, police are almost always given the benefit of the doubt in these cases. Uh, in, the, in the overkill paper, I've, I've documented cases where police have been basically exonerated after shooting someone after mistaking a blue cup for a gun or a cell phone, uh, or in one case it was the glint off a wristwatch. Uh, in all these cases, the police are forgiven because when prosecutors or, or grand juries or civilian review boards look at these cases, they understand these are very high-stakes, dynamic situations, and almost anybody in that position uh, is going to fear for their life, and they're going to be prone to make mistakes. Now, of course, the police created those high uh, volatile stakes to begin with, uh, but I can sort of see why the police in a lot of these cases are forgiven, uh, or at least not criminally charged, uh, because they are in this situation, and they've been put in this situation. And I think we need to look at the policy, which is the problem, and, and not necessarily individual officers in all of these cases, although, although in some there is certainly officer misconduct. The unfortunate thing is that when civilians make the same sort of mistakes under the same circumstances, they aren't given the same sort of deference. Uh, and Tim alluded to the Corey May case, uh, which is a, a great example. I mean, this guy had no prior criminal record. Uh, he had a, uh, about a gram of burnt marijuana in his home. He clearly wasn't a drug dealer. Uh, and the police were breaking into his home in the middle of the night. He was asleep with his 18-month-old daughter. 
Uh, and he did what I think a lot of people in this room would have done. He feared for his life. Uh, and he lived in a, a bad neighborhood. Uh, the door flew open in the middle of the night. You're there with your daughter. She's laying on the bed. Uh, you're going to protect yourself, which is what he did. Uh, he's now doing a life sentence uh, in Parchment Penitentiary. But he's not the only one. Uh, last, just, just this past January, Ryan, a guy named Ryan Frederick in Chesapeake, Virginia. Uh, Frederick uh, also had no prior criminal record. Uh, an informant told the police that Frederick had a major marijuana grow operation in his garage. Uh, we now know that the uh, informant had broken into Frederick's home three days before the raid. Uh, and that the informant was an acquaintance of Frederick who had a grudge with him, uh, who also had been picked up with the, from, by the police on credit card charges about three days before the raid. Uh, they broke into Frederick's home uh, at about 8.30 at night. Uh, Frederick was sleeping because he works an early shift. Uh, he woke up, uh, came out into the living room, and this, of course, is his, his account of events. Uh, they had already busted out the, the bottom quarter panel of his door, and he saw one of the officers reaching up into his home under the quarter panel, reaching for the door handle. Now, keep in mind, this guy's house had just been broken into three days earlier. Uh, he had an old, uh, a, a cheap handgun that he had in the home for protection. He fired. He ended up shooting and killing uh, Detective uh, Jared Shivers. Uh, Frederick's going to be tried in January, uh, also for capital murder. They did not find uh, the marijuana grow in his garage. There were no marijuana plants. Uh, they did find uh, about a quarter of an ounce of marijuana uh, in his living room, uh, which he concedes he was a, a recreational pot smoker. Um, <clears throat> there's also a guy in Columbus, Ohio, named Derek Foster. Uh, this happened about two months ago. Uh, Foster was a, as a former uh, Ohio State football player who also uh, was a uh, code inspector for the city of Columbus and had stellar work reviews for his entire career as a civil servant. Uh, he did have a vice, which was he liked to shoot dice. Uh, so Foster was in a dice house uh, in Columbus when the police uh, apparently noticed that this house had a lot of traffic and assumed it was a drug house. It was a dice house. Um, they uh, you took a battering ram to the door. Uh, somebody inside the, the house uh, uh, said that they were being robbed. Foster, who carried a legal uh, concealed carry or had a legal concealed carry permit, uh, pulled out his gun. Somebody else fired first at the door. The police started firing through the door. Uh, Foster fired back through the door, ended up wounding two police officers. Uh, this guy also had no prior criminal record. They found no drugs on him. Uh, and in fact, I don't think they found any drugs in the house at all. Uh, and he's, he'll be tried uh, for attempted murder uh, on the two police officers. So the same deference sort of that we give to police officers in these situations because of the high stakes and the volatility uh, which is, I think is understandable in a lot of ways, but the, that same deference is not given to the people, to the targets of these raids. And I think that's particularly troubling given that the raids are designed, uh, designed to take people by surprise. A lot of times the, the flashbang, flashbang grenades are used. Uh, they're designed to confuse and bewilder people. And then we expect them you know, to sort of wake up in the middle of the night and instantly know that the men, the armed men in their homes, uh, are, are police and, and not criminals there uh, to do them harm. Um, I have two minutes. I was going to go through a list of, uh, of reforms I have, but I'll, I'll try to just hit the highlights. Um, so, so how can we sort of roll this back? Um, at the federal level, I think uh, for, for 20 years now, the Pentagon has been giving away surplus military equipment to local police departments. I think that's a bad idea, and I think it's also precipitated sort of the, r the rise in these SWAT teams. 
Uh, we also have federal grants, uh, police grants that are tied directly to drug policing, which if you have a SWAT team, I think it encourages departments to use the SWAT teams for drug offenses because every time you arrest someone on a drug offense, uh, it adds to your statistics, which helps you get these federal grants. Um, I think every raid needs to be videotaped. Uh, it would be very easy to attach a small digital camera to uh, each officer's helmet or to his uniform. That would clear up a lot of the questions about whether the police knocked, how long they waited after they knocked. Um, I think, uh, as, as Mayor uh, Calvo alluded to, I think every major police department in the country needs to have a database uh, where these warrants are tracked from the time they're applied for to the time they're executed. And we also need to know what the result of that was. If uh, one particular narcotics unit is enforcing lots and lots of warrants that aren't turning up any drugs, uh, then that should alert public officials that something's wrong. I think judges, and, and actually I think even the media should have access to these databases. When a judge is approving a search warrant from an officer and she looks in her computer and she sees that over the past year this particular officer has served five warrants uh, that didn't turn up any drugs, uh, then she should apply some extra scrutiny to that case. Um, finally, uh, there's a, there was a case uh, in, in, uh, at the federal district court uh, a couple weeks ago uh, where the judge came down with what I think was a very interesting ruling, and it actually uh, supports a, a theory that a, a friend of the Cato Institute I know, um, uh, Clay Conrad, who's a lawyer in Texas, has been advancing on this, which is that these raids um, – are basically a way of inflicting punishment on people before they've ever been even charged with a crime, much less convicted. Um, you're breaking into someone's home, you're throwing them on the ground, you're putting them, putting a gun to their head. Uh, in the cases of the flashbang grenades, people have been burned, people have been killed by them, uh, people have had heart attacks after being scared by them. Uh, they're designed to injure. I mean, they're designed to, to basically paralyze you and, and, and uh, basically sort of stop your senses. Uh, and the argument here is that these raids are a form of sort of punishment of the criminal justice system, sort of inflicting punishment on people before they've ever been uh, charged, much, much less uh, convicted of a crime. And I think it's an interesting uh, theory, and it's one that I, I think uh, I would like to see, you know, more public discussion of. Um, with that, I'll, I'll stop. Thanks. Thanks, Radley. Our next speaker is going to give us the benefit of his background and experience in law enforcement. Uh, he retired as a police captain after a 20-year career uh, in Buffalo, New York. After retiring in 1989, he began to make his own personal misgivings about the drug war publicly known. Uh, he saw it up close, uh, and he concluded that the war on drugs was uh, resulting in more harm than good. Uh, after giving hundreds of talks around the country and with speaking with countless members of uh, police units, he came up with the idea of creating a drug reform group that was modeled after Vietnam veterans against the war. In 2002, he founded Law Enforcement Officers Against Prohibition, or LEAP. And over the last six years, it's just been growing uh, hand over fist as more and more police officers and concerned citizens sign up. Today, he's going to give us uh, his insights into the problem of these no-knock raids and how it impacts uh, the police officers and what might be done to limit them, stop them. Would you please welcome Peter Christ. Thank you. Here, see you readily. Hi, all. Just what you wanted to hear from, right, a cop? Oh, oh boy, what's he going to have to say today? 
Well, first off, let me tell you that we've been doing police work for a long time in this country, probably since about 1800. And we've been serving warrants for a long time. I started on the police department back in 1969, and I'll tell you how we used to actively serve warrants back in the 70s and the early 80s. And that was this way. Hello, Mr. Smith. We have a warrant for your arrest. If you'll please come with us now, we'll have to take you down to the station. There was usually another person standing there in case there was a problem. Then in the late 80s, SWAT teams started becoming fashionable. And you have to understand something about police work. It is still male-dominated and youthful as the young people come in. And I don't know how many young men we have in the audience here that used to like to play war when you were kids. Well, this is war with real toys. And it's really a good time. The training's a real kick. You know, and when you actually get out there to do it, well, gee, wow, isn't that fun? And the more of it you can do, the better. So we started in our department. I didn't work for Buffalo PD. I worked for a suburb of Buffalo, an 85,000-person community. We had about 110 officers the department. We started our first SWAT team in around 1985 and used it very sparingly. I retired there in 1989, and I get back to visit from time to time, and I notice each year when I go back, they use a SWAT team more and more. Each year, more and more. And it almost comes down, I had one of the officers saying, well, gee, you know, if we spend all this time and money training it and we don't use it, what does that say about us? You have to kind of justify it in some way. So we get upset about it when things like this happen with the mayor or the many instances that Bradley has studied. And they terrify us because we understand that it could be us. If it can happen to anybody, then we're anybody. You know, if it's just them scummy drug dealers that it's happening to, well, what the hell? We don't have to care about it, do we? We're safe in our home because we know we don't do that. But if it's anybody, then we're all eligible. And who's at fault for this? Well, it's them cops, ain't it? They're the ones out there with the guns and the badges and the cars. And now, as I was talking to Radley earlier, the tanks. Yeah, we actually have some police departments that have tanks now with 50 caliber machine guns on them. And you ask yourself, what's the matter with these people? But we never go to the mirror, do we? We never look at ourselves. See, I hate to say this to the mirror, but, and this word hasn't been used yet today, collateral damage, mayor. You know, hey, we're in a war. We're in a war. You don't worry about victims in a war. You get a gunfire from that village, you take out the village, Right? Women and children, that's all part of the war casualty. This isn't a drug policy in America we're dealing with. We're dealing with a drug war here. And you train cops to have respect for people. That's what we do at the Basic Academy. Respect, dignity. Everyone's an individual. We're out there to protect the people from each other. That's what our job is. And then you put them out there and tell them, oh, yeah, we forgot to tell you, you're also in a war. And we expect you to win it. Now, we have no clear definition for victory, do we? What is victory in the drug war? Can anybody give me a definition of victory in the drug war? It's interesting. I've done over a 1,000 presentations in this issue, mostly to Rotary Clubs and Kiwanis Clubs and Lions Clubs, real radical groups. (laughs) And I ask them all a question very early in my presentation. I'll ask the question here. Anybody believe you can make drugs go away? Show your hands. How many people think we can do something to make drugs go away? 
Well, we have a war on drugs, right? How do you win a war? You defeat the enemy. That's how wars are won. What is the enemy here? The enemy is drugs. So the only way this war can be won is we make drugs go away. But we all know that's not possible. So what do we have to do? Well, just keep fighting the war, right? That's the definition of a genius, I think, isn't it? Isn't it Einstein who used to say that? The sign of a genius is a person that does the same thing over and over again, expecting, I'm sorry, the sign of a fool (laughs) is a person that does the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. And we keep doing it, but nobody wants to stand up. You know, I get a little impatient with this, and you'll have to excuse my impatience. I was, uh, next April, by the way, I have an anniversary coming up. It'll be 20 years worked and 20 years retired. And next October, you're from this October, I have another anniversary coming up. 20 years in drug policy reform. I had a lot more victories on the police job that I have in the past 20 years. I've been involved in a reform movement in this country that doesn't think we should talk about legalizing drugs, ending the drug war, that we should talk about incremental methods to get to it, that we should spend our time talking about medical marijuana, and we should spend our time talking about no offense, no-knock warrants, and if we can somehow solve that problem, everything will be better. But the root of this, the root of this, is the policy we have chosen in this country. That's what's at the root of this. There's an old story, you all probably heard it before, about a little village on a river. And there's bodies that are floating down from time to time down this river. And the village gets together and they create a team to go out and save the people that they can save and recover the bodies. And they're doing this daily, daily, this problem is going on. Finally, an expert comes to town. And the expert says, gee, I think I can maybe help you with your problem here. And they said, well, would you? And the expert says, yeah, but it's going to cost you $50,000. So they figure, well, hey, anything at this point. We've already spent millions on this. So they give the expert the $50,000, and he proceeds to leave town. And they stop, and they say, where are you going? And he says, well, I figured I'd go upriver and see where they're throwing the bodies in. Seemed like the best place to stop this problem from happening. Rather than just recovering the stuff down at the end of the river, how about stopping the bodies from being thrown in? We have a failed drug policy in America. It is called not a war on drugs, but prohibition. The reason they didn't call it the new prohibition is, you all know that doesn't work. So they thought they'd give you a name that's something that does work. War. And then you send us out to do it. And you tell us our job is to protect and to serve. And we think we can do that. And then you tell us how come there's still drugs on the street. Go do something else. So we go out and we do a little bit more. And then you complain that there's still drugs on the street. So we go out and we do a little bit more. And I want to give you credit. You protect us while we screw up. You stand behind us because you realize you have some responsibility. But we're out there doing it. You know, part of this problem is we talk about a lot police corruption. Anybody here ever hear of a police corruption case in America where a local rapist, serial rapist, was paying off the cops? No. How about a local bank robber paying off the cops? No. 
It's always these consensual crime laws. And by the way, that's a much better term than victimless crime. See, what we're talking about here is consensual activity between adults. Somebody wants to buy the drug. Somebody wants to sell the drug. They're happy. You know, 20 years of police work, I had parents twice in 20 years on the job that actually turned their children in for crimes that their children committed. One was a mother who turned their child in because she had found out that their son had committed a rape. And she couldn't allow somebody like that to not go unpunished. Another one who found out that her daughter was involved with a couple other people and were involved in a burglary ring. They turned him in. 20 years of police work, I never had one parent turn one child in for drugs. Not once. In fact, I used to arrest people for drugs, and I'd say, where did you get them? And they'd say, I found them. Because they didn't even want to turn in the dealer when they were being arrested. See, because this is not a victim crime. This is a consensual crime. And there's a big difference between these two types of crime in our society. With victim crimes, you have a victim. They're screaming for justice. And with consensual crime, all you do is create more crime. 75% of the violence we have in our society today that we associate with drugs, you know the terms. If we have any reporters here, you may have even written this phrase, drug-related shooting. Right? You know, it's interesting. I did some study on this. Not one reporter back in the 1920s, early 1930s, referred to the St. Valentine's Day massacre as an alcohol-related shooting. Not one. They all knew that those people didn't get drunk and go out and mow seven people down in a garage. What happened was those people got between Al Capone and his money, and they had to take care of it. 75% of the violence that we have in our society today that we associate with drugs is, in fact, drug business-related shooting. 25% is because of people using drugs and doing stupid things. Now, I'm not minimizing that. That's a serious problem we have to deal with. But it's not nearly as serious is that other problem, that 75%. You know, if you're a mayor and you have 10 murders a year and I come to you for a solu- with a solution for that and my solution for those 10 murders a year is going to mean you have 40 murders a year, are you going to consider that a viable solution? Well, no, you're going to think I'm crazy. You know, no matter what the 10 murder a year problem is, I'll deal with that. I don't need 30 more. But that's what we get with this policy. But we're not talking about it, are we? And I'm serious about this. There is no active discussion in this country going on about drug policy. About drug policy. We're spending all our time dancing around this issue and talking about the ancillary things that are connected to it. Nobody wants to touch it. And it's interesting Because people say to me, don't you get frustrated? And I really don't. I'm 62 years old. Just got my second Social Security check last month. (laughs) Moving along. Finally got a pay raise after 20 years. (laughs) The reason I don't get frustrated is this. I understand what I'm involved in. And I'll give you a quick solution. And I know you want to get to questions, and I'm sure you have a lot of them, so I'll not take quite as long and get to it. And what I like to say, and I like to use this example, I like to thank the women that are here in the audience today. And I want to thank you women for representing a group of people who studied real hard. And finally, by 1920, 
you all became intelligent enough to vote. I think that's really wonderful that you all... See, there's only one of two possibilities. Either women were too stupid to vote before 1920, or we had a dumb policy in effect that stopped women from voting before 1920. And you know what? That policy was never a good idea. It wasn't a good idea in 1776, and it wasn't a good idea in 1919. It didn't become a bad idea, but it took us 150 years to correct. So at 62 years old, I honestly have no expectation of seeing an end to this drug war in my lifetime. I really don't. I'm just doing everything I can do to make it happen as soon as possible. But we can't have it happen if we don't talk about it. And our failure in and outside the movement is to talk about the key issue here, which is drug policy in America. And in case you haven't gotten it, Mayor, from my old profession, I'd like to apologize to you for what happened. I happen to be a dog owner, and I can imagine how I would have reacted. It would have tore my heart out for nothing, for nothing. But we accept it. Hey, it's collateral damage. Thank you. Thanks. We have uh, a few minutes to take your questions. I, I do have a couple of requests. Uh, first, wait for, when after I call on you, please wait for the microphone to arrive so that we can all hear your question. Please identify yourself and any affiliation that you might have, and please keep your questions brief so that we can get to as many people as possible. Howard. Uh, Howard Woldridge, uh, retired police detective from Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. Mr. Mayor, I, I would also like to extend my, um, my deep uh, sadness at your loss and the actions of my profession in, in your case as a way of explanation as to why we were so sloppy in almost every aspect of the raid conducted on your house. Understand that after 37 years of drug war, and we know we've never made a difference, we haven't even been a mosquito in the butt of an elephant. We have become frustrated because even though we go on raid after raid, officers are shot, officers are killed, we have never made a difference in this thing after 37 years. So we've developed basically a, a holy war, jihad spirit in this thing where no matter how badly we screw up, how many mistakes we make, God and right are on our side. And that's why we, no matter what happens, we're still going to heaven. And we operate on that premise that since we're doing the Lord's work, nothing's bad's going to happen to us. And that is part of the, and that we saw that in Tulia, Texas. We saw that in your case. We saw that in, in, in Atlanta where the, the grandmother was shot dead. We are at this thing because we've been told we've got to do this as a, as a war. Of course, it's a war on citizens. But that is a, I hope, a small explanation as to why we're so sloppy. Because no matter how badly we screw up, we're never going to be punished. And, in fact, we're going to be rewarded once we get to heaven. Sorry. Larry Pratt here. Larry Pratt, Gun Owners of America. Uh, Mr. Mayor, is there any uh, effort, any movement on the county board, I guess it is, or council uh, in Prince George's to 
see about indemnification for what was done and more broadly to look at a policy which uh, uh, was used when clearly or it should be clear was out of line uh, we don't we shouldn't be using things like that for as as was stated by the panel nonviolent uh, allegations to answer your question i believe um, you know the the county council was out of session from through August, and they just came back this week. I actually have a call in to Tony Knotts, who's the county council person in charge of public safety. Um, I called him yesterday morning. I, I, to my knowledge, I haven't heard back, but I hope to talk to him. I, I think the broader issue I, I tried to outline is it's things about you know indemnification means uh, liability for the officers involved. Is that what you mean? Yeah. And and you know those things. I mean. Uh, my case, I, I, I would put, you know, aside a little bit. What I think they should be focusing on is the broader range of how often do they do this and get those answers. There's a lot of questions. And, you know, fortunately, we have a number of investigations, both internal investigations, but I think especially the FBI probe that will get a lot of information out. And I, I am a big believer of not reaching conclusions until you have information. So I hope that the FBI probe and I hope some even I hope the county council will have some hearings and do what good legislators do, which is conduct some oversight. And that'll help set a table for some changes that certainly need to be made. And, and if not at the county level, certainly the state uh, can step in as the county's instrumentality of the state. And hopefully the state legislature may come up with some reforms as well. I'd like to address that, too. Um, it's not going to happen, uh, but the suggestion I would have is um, uh, we need to end uh, the concept of qualified immunity for police officers. I think there needs to be – I guess I should have put that in my speech. Um, uh, I, think, I think that the, the anybody else screws up in their job and somebody dies or, or has their, their pet killed or is traumatized, uh, they're going to be sued. Uh, and I think that that same – uh, standard needs to apply to police officers with these warrants. Uh, I think you'd see a lot more careful uh, planning and investigation if that were the case. Yes, sir. Edward Roeder with Sunshine Press. Not to uh, dash your hopes about the FBI investigation, but a couple of decades ago, I did a story that became a cover story for Village Voice on the FBI raiding the apartment of a woman in Alexandria they thought was Patty Hearst. And I'm wondering if anybody on the panel knows about the use of fugitive warrants where they get a warrant for a person who's a real fugitive and then serve it whenever and wherever they want. And then after they've destroyed property and terrorized people, make up reasons for going to that place or why they knew what they knew. It, it seems that that's possibly even more common than warrants for uh, drugs. Do, does anyone on the panel know anything about that? I've never had any experience with fugitive warrants, so I can't really speak on it. Yeah, I mean, I've seen a few cases of that, of police hitting the wrong address while looking for a fugitive. Um, I, I'm, I, I tend to be a little more forgiving on those types of cases because if you do have a, a dangerous fugitive on the loose, um, I, I think... That's one of the few scenarios where I think these tactics are appropriate if someone's an immediate threat to the community. Um, but the scenario you described where they sort of use that as an excuse to sort of conduct random raids obviously is a problem, but I, I, I haven't seen a lot of that. So, Yes, sir. Check, check. 
My name is Sal, Sal Colosi, and I'm the father of the optometrist that was killed in uh, 2006 uh, in Fairfax. And it was mentioned in the uh, Wall Street Journal article that, that was passed out. I have a question for you, Mayor Calvo. Um, do you plan to bring a civil action against uh, the county for, for what they did? Because you, you nailed it on, uh, right on the head. People, the SWAT team members, are trained to do and go after really dangerous people. And there's a reason for them. But when they use SWAT to go after known people who are not a threat in any way, shape, or form and create the environment for doing that, they need to be held accountable. I mean, my son was being arrested for gambling, not narcotics. The gambling unit came under the narcotics. So all the tactics that were used for narcotics were automatically applied for gambling. And they did a take vehicle takedown, but a lot of details. But the point is you got to get to the county. They are the culprits. They just don't care. They apply the same rules and the procedures and the use of SWAT against no threats. People with low threat, the use of excessive force when it's really not applicable. So my question, I'm sorry I ramble, but my question to you is do you plan to bring civil litigation against the county for being derelict in their responsibilities for allowing this to happen? A lot of people have asked this question, and, you know, I I can tell you that we have not ruled out any action or just made decisions yet. I mean, we're really focused on getting a lot of information. And, you know, it seems like it's been a month and a half, and you think a lot of information has come out so far. It really, really hasn't. And there's uh, our hope, and, you know, we're we're aware of deadlines, and, you know, we're we're aware of our options. But the reality is uh, we want to be deliberate in our process uh, and give this event a degree of measured thought that I think was lacking um, uh, with the authorities. But in case, thank you for being here, by the way. I think, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I've heard from so many people who have experienced similar things. And I, like I said, in my, our case, I really do think we are blessed in many ways. I'm terribly sorry for the loss of your son. Uh, I, I, I'm very, very sorry. I just want to point out that tomorrow morning we're going to be in court to ask for um, an interlocutory appeal on our case where we're saying that it's excessive force for to use aggressive tactics that would aim your weapon at someone, okay, at his solid, at his, at a center of mass, a hollow point, these bullets that they use, these 45s, to just aim that weapon at someone who is not threatening you in any way, shape, or form. That practice, we believe, is excessive force. Judge Brinkema here in the court rejected it and gave, um, threw out those counts, and we're asking them to, her, asking her for an interlocutory appeal to Richmond so that, that that will get on the record. And if that passes, that will be a significant step forward. I don't offer much hope, but I think that will be a significant step forward in the use of these kinds of tactics and force. They should be applied where they're needed. I'm sorry I rambled. That's okay. Radley, did you want to? Yeah, just two comments on that. Um, as regrettable as it is to, to say that uh, we should ask taxpayers to sort of 
uh, cover for the mistakes of, of government officials in these cases. Obviously, the, the people victimized by them have to be made whole. Uh, but what I've also found, though, is that's one of the few tactics that actually gets changes in policy, uh, where there have been uh, government, uh, local governments that have changed their, ta- their, their policies on how SWAT teams are used. It's been when they've been sued after uh, botched raids to the point where uh, municipal insurers say, we're not going to insure you anymore unless you change these policies. Uh, and I'd also uh, credit the, the Colossis because they're not, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, at least at the beginning of the suit, um, they aren't just asking for money, which I think they deserve, but they're also asking for real changes uh, to the way that the SWAT team is deployed in Fairfax County, and I think that's, um, I think that's admirable. Okay, I'm afraid we have run out of time, but everybody here is invited to the reception upstairs, and we can continue the conversation up there. Please thank our panel. <laughs> you did a good job.